welcome back to ATRI Podcast, a series where we explore and understand how research works in the environment and ecology and how its implementation can pull us out of climate doom. The ATRI Podcast is your one-stop shop of curated content on conservation, sustainability and the environment. This is your host, Namrata Murli. Today, we're in conversation with Dr. Veena Srinivasan. She's the Director of Center for Social and Environmental Innovation at ATRI. Her research interests include intersectoral water allocation, impacts of multiple stressor on water resources, ground and surface water linkages, and sustainable water management policy and practice, while her work at CSEI focuses on transforming research into impact. Let's get started and delve a little deeper to understand the work being done at CSEI. Welcome, Dr. Srinivasan. Thanks for inviting me, Namrita. It's a pleasure to be chatting. So, uh, Dr. Srinivasan, could you tell us what are some of the primary objectives at the center and uh, what the center's work revolves around? Sure. Namrita, as you know that ATRI is uh, a research institute, and so my own work at ATRI started many years ago as a researcher in the water space. Um, and uh, trying to understand why water resources are depleting, degrading uh, in the way they are and what can we do about it. But what we realized a couple of years ago is that a lot of the work that we do uh, gets published and it's very important and insightful work, but it doesn't necessarily get transformed into practice uh, or it takes a very long time for the research to kind of permeate into communities of practice. Um, and so oftentimes we feel like we are pushing the edge of uh, the research world, but uh, the practice or policy community in their thinking is like a decade behind. And so somehow we felt like we needed to, to accelerate that process by which uh, the insights and what we are understanding about how water works, that's getting translated to these communities so that we don't have that very long time lag. So that's where the center started two years ago. And uh, we also made a couple of uh, strategic choices. So firstly, there's a tendency in the science community to only talk about science policy um, as kind of being the interface that you work with government and then government policy changes. And uh, that's how change happens on the ground. But what we realized is that that's not the only pathway by which uh, change happens. Pathway happens because citizens change the way they do because consumers start consuming differently, because companies start developing ESG standards and behaving more responsibly. So there are many other pathways to sustainability other than just government policy. And so we wanted to create a center which would be uh, translate research to impact. That's the first part of it. The second is work on what we call first mile solutions. That means work with what we call first mile actors. And I don't know if you've heard of this term first mile. It's kind of the new buzzword uh, in the development circles. But really the idea is when we start with government, the government, by the time the uh, the benefits get to the, the, the end users, you know, they call the, it's called the last mile problem. But really it's about flipping that around and creating agency among a whole range of different actors. And so really the center's work is about that, that uh, playing that role of being able to create that agency. And that's why we call it research back solutions for the first mile um, and then the last piece that the center also focuses on is to think very seriously about trade-offs as well as win-win opportunities between environment and development. And the reason I'm emphasizing that is 
when we work with all the actors that we work with what we find is that often uh, you know people work on 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 a particular scale so if you're working with farmers your goal is how do i get more water to the farmer but just because you got water to one farmer you could still be depleting the aquifer as a whole right and then on the flip side there are people who work on solving the groundwater sustainability problem and they would come up with solutions like let's price water or so on and so forth but those don't work because they're not going to work unless the farmer is happy otherwise you're going to have massive farm protests i mean you can't tomorrow start saying we're just going to take everything away because if the farmer isn't earning income that's not going to your policy isn't going to fly if you're getting the farmer a lot of income but your groundwater is going to deplete that's not a good option either and so being able to find uh, the tight rope the negotiation the win win solutions between both of these so that's kind of the the philosophy of csei and right now we work in three areas we work in food futures which is really looking largely at the food system and agriculture problem uh, as well as rural water security because water is a big part of the food system uh, we are also working in what we call a green cities initiative which is how do we make cities more sustainable livable um, and equitable and then finally we are working uh, in forests on the invasive species in it initiative and initially focusing on lantana which is an invasive which is taking over indian forests so you mentioned that farmers um bringing water to farmers is a big uh, problem today but cities are facing droughts too and temperatures are increasing and uh, there is constant flooding in cities so what are the causes behind these problems and what are some of the effective ways we can handle this right right so let's start with cities i mean as you correctly said it's and 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 you didn't say climate change but i'll say say that because that's kind of in the news because of the new ipcc report as well um so clearly firstly i mean there's this big global problem which is climate change is changing uh, rainfall extremes and temperature extremes and so you're seeing more heat waves across and we saw that all of this summer every part of the world we saw that right and then flooding of course is because when you have a ton of rainfall in a short period of time and 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 the way cities were designed initially if you think about it from for a moment from an engineering aspect um cities were built based on what you know the engineering infrastructure of of for flooding is basically based on building some water drains that were designed for what was called a 100 year flood that means you say you look at all your rainfall time series and say you know what was the worst possible rainfall i can possibly think of and then let me design a drain big enough to carry the runoff that's going to happen and of course what we are seeing across the world partly because of climate change um is because you're getting bigger and bigger rainstorms and that 100 year storm is now happening every 10 years and now you're getting what used to be a 500 year storm now happening every 20 years so so in people's lifetimes they are seeing these massive massive amounts of downpours that they were never imagined and designed for um however it's important to realize that climate change is not kind of the only problem because there is a way with how we've been designing cities which is concretizing every last bit of land available because of the kind of pressures for real estate and so on we have and concrete does a very simple thing it it basically if you you know take a piece of land that was mud and put concrete over it the water can't go in it has to only run off and suddenly all of that water that you're dumping in the city can only kind of run off it has no place to go so because you kind of developed in the way we've developed at the pace and in the way we've developed we've kind of left no not only is it raining more but we've left left no place for the rainfall to go and that's one of the big reasons that cities get flooded and then of course you have problems with solid waste and 
the drains that do exist and are functional are also getting clogged or people are dumping concrete and debris over it so you have kind of a range of or you have climate change which is a big global problem but it's much exacerbated by the kinds of um decisions that we make uh, at the local scale in every city uh, and the same applies for temperature i mean you know climate change is this big driver but just concretization just by itself is going to increase temperature concrete is you know a hot uh, uh, material and um, and so and at the same time we kind of gotten rid of every last bit of green cover which could have met- mitigated some of that change and so um even with, with flooding with temperature this you know with all of these things there's kind of the global drivers and then all the terrible decisions we've made with local planning to make that so much worse so how does the urban lakes initiative help with all this um we know that local communities play a major role in bringing impact to the conservation cause so in what ways do you strengthen community participation to help preserve the health of lakes right right and just to kind of uh, you know link that of course lakes are a manifestation of that earlier problem that you talked about right because uh, because uh, flooding and temperature and all of these things uh, has on one hand kind of lakes are the only last remaining green spaces in many of our cities because we've destroyed all of the parks and so on uh, and so all we have is these lakes so on one hand you have this problem of lakes getting completely destroyed because uh, and and the problem here has to do with wastewater and sewage not being treated and they are being you know as the cities are growing they're not building their wastewater and stormwater infrastructure fast enough and so you just have all of your wastewater being dumped into your 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 rivers or your, what 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 in cities we call stormwater drains and those enter the lakes and the lakes are polluted and just as i said earlier that local the decisions we make are causing the lakes to kind of get polluted because we're not treating our wastewater properly and so on but then the uh, the solutions also lie with local citizens for example right and in cities like bangalore you're really seeing a big push on the part of citizen groups who are really kind of adopting and working with their local lake groups to kind of see um uh, to, to kind of see how they can they can make things locally better and what we are seeing is on one hand citizens are really doing a good job they're putting all of their energy in uh, and they're doing a lot of uh, uh, i want to call out the good things that citizens do in terms of you know you're seeing a lot of uh, citizens working on removing plastic for example uh, another place where you see citizen action being very very effective is during the festivals where a lot of these lake groups the citizens will volunteer to segregate um, the trash and compost it in a very uh, religiously and culturally appropriate way uh, and pre- and you know ensure that the idols only go into the the kalyanis and not into the main lake uh, so that it doesn't disturb the ecology of the lake and so you've seen some tremendous success stories in what citizens can do Uh, but there's also limitation to citizen action because it is what citizens can't do is they can't um, they can't solve the wastewater infrastructure problem of the entire city i mean that's not at the scale that they can act on and i think that's where we can work to really as a research institution as a you know as a institution that works on solutioning that's where we can strengthen the hands of these citizen groups by kind of firstly uh, explaining some of the science but also explaining which or uh, infrastructure projects at a larger scale that are being proposed which ones are beneficial for lakes and which ones are not beneficial because i think at the end of the day um, 
there are solutions. I mean, the problem of wastewater, the problem of safe storm water, these are not new problems. They've existed for 2000 years. Probably, you know, you can see that there was drainage even at the time of the Indus Valley civilization. So that's, you know, 4000 years now. So the, the solutions have existed. So the question is that how can we strengthen the hands of citizen groups to do the right thing for their own lake, which a lot of it they are already doing and learning from each other and so on. But how can we also strengthen the hands of citizen groups to uh, be able to, to, to lobby government and infrastructure agencies to make the right decisions at the larger scale as well? And I think that's an important role that organizations like Adrian CSEI play. So while um, our populations are uh, really affecting the health of lakes, Lantana populations are really affecting the health of our wild spaces. And Atri's primary research focus, a lot of the research focus has been on alternative uses of Lantana. So previous efforts to remove it has been futile. And could you tell us a little more about what uh, revenue generation uh, alternatives you're looking at at CSCI? Um, so Namita, as you said, you know, Lantana is um, uh, an invasive species. It's destroying a lot of Indian forests. Uh, it's an aggressive shrub that's taking over 40% of an estimated 40% of India's forests are covered with lantana and it outcompetes a lot of the native species, right? So the problem is that uh, we want to get rid of it, but it's very, very expensive to remove. I mean, it costs, if we had to just do it cold, we would be spending, you know, 10x the budget of many forest departments to be able to get rid of it. And so the problem that Atri has been working on uh, well before CSCI, you know, so the uh, others at BRT and MM Hills have been trying to see how do we create an economic value for Lantana uh, and create livelihoods for some of the very marginalized communities that live there. And uh, Atri for long supported the Sobika Lantana Crafts um, uh, Center, for example. Now, uh, one of the challenges is scale, right? You can do this at small pockets with few people um, and it creates some livelihoods but it's very very difficult to scale up because um, you can't train enough people fast enough to use up the amount and just the amount of biomass of lantana that exists across the country and so for that you really need to be able to think about ways to use lantana productively uh, and we are looking at a range of other what we call commodity products like particle board, like uh, like bio biogas uh, and so on, that would also create local livelihoods. Bio bricks, you know, create, so can be used for construction locally and so on. Uh, but doing it in a way that will strengthen the local community, but be able to use up much more of the biomass. You can still do the crafts and so on. You can remove the sticks and use them. But the rest of the plant can still be used for all of this other stuff. Now, the challenge in being able to do that is we want to do it. And this is a very, very fundamental challenge with something like lantana. Because you want to get rid of lantana and restore the forest at the end of the day. And so if you, it's very difficult to create economic value for something that you want to get rid of. Because the biggest question that comes up from anybody we speak to is that the minute you create economic value, aren't people going to want to perpetuate it? rather than get rid of it. And so one of the biggest institutional challenges that we have uh, as CSEI is how to create a structure which will force restoration and removal, but at the same time generate income and livelihoods. So that's kind of the problem we're working on. We're hoping that, and, and there are many pieces to this, 
uh, if you really want like to get rid of lantana efficiently you've got to do it in a way that um and you want to use it for a commodity product it's not going to happen by people removing one stick at a time and yet if you're going to use any kind of mechanization you don't want to destroy the forest ecology in any way and so that is one trade off or tight rope you have to walk saying that you want to bring the cost down so that you can get rid of it more efficiently but without destroying anything at the same time you want to create an economic value for it but you also want to get rid of it at the same time so that uh you know you want to make sure that you get rid of it but you want to make sure something good comes in place uh in place of it you want something good to come in place but you want to make sure that the local people are not dispossessed they have a livelihood out of whatever the good thing that comes out whether it's tourism whether it's something else or ndfps whatever it is and so this is kind of the set of tight ropes we have to walk for a initiative like lantana and um and it's our hope that we kind of talk to as many people as we can to see if we can get it right the food futures initiative at csei takes a demand based approach to connect water agriculture and energy so as to make regenerative agriculture sustainable but right now india has less than 1000 uh, metric cube of renewable fresh water available per person and even this is unequitably distributed so how does the ffi plan to tackle and achieve these goals yeah no that's a great question amrita because um as you said i mean we and 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 as i said the the challenge is we want to we want to kind of create a sustainable food system we want to put food into money into people's pockets farmers pockets and we want to not degrade the soil and water resources and this is kind of a big big challenge because water is a big constraint and right now it's basically a few people with either access to canal headwaters of canals or deep bore wells that get all of the water and half over half of india's farmers are rain fed and they have very little access to anything so the challenge is going to be how do we in some places uh, redistribute some of that water so that you you're expanding access to water but without taking away income you may take away water but you don't want to take away income from some of those uh people who have access to it uh, at the moment and uh, at the same time we have to realize and i i see this often we have to realize that the problem of agriculture and water is not a problem of food and water resources uh it's a problem of jobs at the end of the day so if, if we have you know 600 million farmers uh half of uh, more than half 80% of them almost are smallholders and over half of them don't have access to irrigation that's kind of the very the reality of what we are working with now um if we have to get water to every one of them uh uh but without without reducing the amount of overall water that that I mean without sorry without uh unsustainably using water overall then that's kind of going to be a really really big challenge on the other hand if you're going to accept that some fraction of farmers are going to stay rain fed um at the moment a rain fed farmer probably earns uh 30 to 30000 rupees per acre uh, per year while a farmer with access to irrigation might earn anything from 2 to 4 lakhs per acre per year so there's a big difference uh, that access to irrigation makes to farmer income so the question is how many of those people in the 30000 rupees per acre per year can you move to the 2 lakh 
rupees per acre per year. And as I said, some of that might come from redistribution. Uh, but some of it may be that you need off-farm jobs. You need other kinds of employment, uh, whether it is value addition, whether it is a software industry located in villages, whether it's, you know, all kinds of other options, uh, ecotourism, food tourism, you know, all kinds of other stuff uh, where people have access to other forms of income uh, other than just trying to eke out an existence from that piece of land. And so the answer to how do you do this is going to lie not just in the water and agriculture sector, but also in the overall uh, approach to how do we create livelihoods. Um, so I know that's not a very straightforward answer that you were hoping for, but um, it's not an this one is the hardest of all the nuts to crack. But I also think you started off saying that demand uh, side also matters. And I think a part of the solution will also lie there. So, so for I'll give you an example. We were in uh, Tumkur last week and um, we were watching these rain fed farmers, you know, they practice something called Lakadi Salu, which is a very traditional way of uh, farming where they grow ragi. And then they grow other crops in between. And they generally put in nitrogen fixers in between their ragi crop. So they grow either avrikai or they grow, you know, what's called tovare, which is tuar, uh, and any one of these leguminous nitrogen fixing crops. And most of the time, that part, the in-between crop that they're growing is for their self-consumption. So they're selling the ragi for the market and they're growing the other stuff. Now, often you will see in between those, you get a lot of weeds. And they hire uh, people once a week to come and deweed the farm. And the people who come and hire the laborers, they don't chuck those weeds. They don't, you know, put pesticide or herbicide on them. But they take them home and that's their dinner for the day. They make sopo. So they'll tell you on the days that we do the deweeding, we make sopo that night for dinner. So we clearly know that there is a way for us to, to, to eat the weeds. And and 80%, 90% of those weeds are edible and they all know which ones are. But it's really difficult to get them to a market and monetize that. So some of the challenges exist in us being able to think creatively and differently about agriculture. I don't know if we are going to be able to create monetary value, but I do know that eating those greens rather than putting herbicide on them and we know that or most herbs are getting now, they are so poisoned that they are actually getting pesticide resistant, I mean, herbicide resistance weeds, resistant weeds. I know that that direction of us chasing uh, and playing this perpetual uh, escalating spiral with the bugs and the pests and the, uh, and the weeds is a problem. So the question is that can we think about creative ways on the demand side to be able to solve some of that? I don't have answers to all of this. I think that if we are able to think about it creatively, we'll hit on something. But we're still in the brainstorming stage over here. So with all these varied initiatives at CSEI, what are the changes at policy and individual level that would allow you to materialize these long-term goals at CSEI? Yeah, there isn't one policy or... Um, and by individual level, you mean within our, by our employees or by humans at large in society? Humans at large. Or individual meaning me, humans at large. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, uh, I think that, obviously there's not one policy. There's every policy, you know, every one of these initiatives will require policy shifts. We can't do anything 
anywhere without the government moving along but the way we are approaching this is to say that um uh, that if we build what we called impact ecosystems that means we build the people of the consumers the farmer producer organizations you know the buyers uh, the the wholesalers if we bring all of these people together um and we bring local government together as well as one of the as one of the stakeholders um you will see shifts coming in very very organically because one thing i'll i'll say is that we think that policy can only happen in delhi but policy happens at every level right small shifts happen at the collectors district collectors level at the gram panchayat level and so on so if you are able to bring these pieces together for each of these uh, initiatives or these ideas that we talked about i i imagine that there would be specific uh, support systems that we could put in place and and they could be policy at any at any level it could be you know support for nurseries of some kind it could be the gram panchayat or the district collector supporting a cold storage chain uh, in the case of lantana several of the uh, forest officers have come to us divisional forest officers have come to us across the country uh, and said we really like what you're doing can you can you set up a pilot for us because we want to see how to scale it so i think that um, i would like to think of policy as not policy with a capital p but policy in the context of us having built these impact ecosystems uh, and i think the answer the same answer applies to the individuals involved because once you kind of created these um, local impact ecosystems then uh, you're kind of enabling and creating synergies for all the different actors to work with each other uh, and, and and that kind of makes the role and the possibilities and the behavior changes that each individual actor has to make uh, more obvious does that make sense yeah definitely it's a lot to ponder upon for all of us i'm sure definitely makes sense so thank you veena for taking the time to speak with me today and for all the amazing work that you do you truly have been an inspiring role model to me and for so many young girls who aspire to be scientists It was a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you, Namita. Thank you. Stay tuned to our channel for more insights into the environment and the problems we face globally. Do subscribe to our channel to stay connected.